In northeastern Syria last month, ISIS staged a prison break. And for the American-backed Syrian Democratic Forces guarding the prison, their worst nightmare was unfolding. ISIS militants were trying to free roughly 3,000 of their members being held inside. It took 10 days for American-backed forces to secure the remaining prisoners, and it's unclear how many escaped. Now we're left with the question, is ISIS back? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 9th. Today, what we know about the brazen prison break and whether ISIS is reinventing itself as a global threat. And later in the show, as the Supreme Court considers Roe v. Wade, the state of Vermont is moving to guarantee the right to an abortion in their constitution. When we look at the prison attack, honestly, I, I still have more questions than answers. Louisa Loveluck is the Post's Baghdad bureau chief. She's been on the ground in Syria, covering the fallout from this prison break. What we don't know is what went on in the cells where you had this terrible siege in the final days. The militants effectively, or allegedly, hold themselves up in cells where some 700 minors were being kept. These are people who came to the caliphate as, as kids, through no fault of their own, their parents took them. And what we do know is that that's where the fighting happened, behind closed doors. We know that there has been no comprehensive accounting of, of what happened, of who was killed, of what tactics were used. So it's really hard to say at this stage whether this is a sign of ISIS strength within that kind of really close quarters fighting, or whether it was a sign of the SDF just really not knowing what to do. Louisa, what do we know about the current threat of the caliphate, especially since former President Trump had claimed that the U.S. had, quote, 100 percent won in the fight against ISIS? We just took over. uh, You know, you kept hearing it was 90 percent, 92 percent, the caliphate in Syria. Now it's 100 percent. We just took over 100 percent caliphate. Well, ISIS was officially defeated back in 2019. And in the years since then, it's really been kind of successful, at least in slipping back to its kind of insurgent roots, particularly in Syria, where I've just come back from. It operates small sleeper cells. It's done some roadside attacks. It's targeted security forces, individuals who might want to work with the local government in the area it once ruled. But for the most part, these have really been attacks that constitute intimidation, perhaps extortion, ways of making itself have a bit more operating space, a little bit more cash to keep operations going. So it's been this kind of like slow burn, slow tick of, of attacks, but nothing nothing anywhere like the ISIS that, that we knew, you know, the ISIS that took territory the size of Britain. And that's why its, it's activity in recent weeks really, for, for some, has been so surprising. And how worried are U.S. officials about the fact that they've seen this slow burn increase in ISIS activity? Well, I think U.S. officials, by and large, do recognize that this is currently a threat that really plagues communities in Syria, communities in Iraq, you know, local allied governments in these countries. But it's not something that at this stage has the potential to become a worldwide threat as it was before, as it was from 2014 through 2019. So I think they definitely see it as a destabilizing factor with allies abroad, but not something that they think really has a serious potential to come back and hit them at home like it perhaps once did. 
So ISIS was, quote-unquote, defeated a few years ago. Um, I-, I wonder whether that is actually true. Like, were they really defeated, or, or what is the definition of defeat here? Well, I think that's a great question. You know, when we think internationally about ISIS, we think about this organization that had propaganda around the world. It had foreigners all flocking to this territory in Syria, in Iraq. You know, they called it a caliphate, and it had this incredibly gory propaganda where we saw the murder of hundreds, if not thousands, of Syrians and Iraqis, as well as as foreigners, as well as Americans, as well as Brits. But by 2019, when they were defeated in the battle for Baghouz... Baghouz, illuminated by fire to the drumbeat of gunshots and heavy artillery on what U.S.-backed forces hope will be the last night for the Islamic State's self-declared caliphate. This sort of tiny Syrian village where they, which became their last redoubt, they really were a shadow of their former selves. They'd been bombed into submission, really, by a U.S.-led coalition from the air. They've been defeated on the ground by Iraqi troops in Iraq and a Kurdish-led force in Syria. And they really were sort of fighting for their lives down to the last scrap of territory. Now, after that, thousands of them were left in Syria and Iraq. They were arrested off the battlefield. Some of them surrendered. And they poured into prisons. They poured into camps where they've really been left. When you talk to U.S. officials about the threat that they constitute now, one of the big things people talk about are these guys, these guys who effectively have been left to rot. No one has repatriated them. No one has prosecuted them. And they're just sitting there, abandoned and effectively alone. So tell me about what happened at the prison last month and how that came to be. Well, after years of these small-scale attacks, you know, stalking rural communities, but not really launching anything major, on January 20th, members of the group in northeast Syria effectively tried to bust out thousands of its members from a prison that had been holding people arrested in the final weeks of the battle for Baghouz. You know, this attack started with a car bomb, then another car bomb. The facility was swarmed with militants. Prisoners also poured out. Some of them were able to take weapons from their guards. And there began a standoff where these prisoners and these sleeper cells really took on the combined might of the U.S.-backed forces, of the U.S.-led coalition, and they held out for 10 days. But what do you make of the fact that ISIS forces were able to hold out for so long? I mean, I would imagine that that is a surprising level of strength for what is supposed to be this, like, defeated entity. Well, I think the ironic thing about this attack is that while it was really deeply shocking in in scale and nature— I suppose the thing is, it wasn't a surprise to a lot of people. This was something of a nightmare foretold, honestly. ISIS has repeatedly emphasized its desire to break people out of jail. And the coalition and the US-backed Syrian democratic forces have repeatedly warned that this was a risk. When we were in Syria back in August, we spoke to the head of that Syrian democratic force, this um, US-led force on the ground. You mentioned the prisons, 11,000 people. How secure do you think the prisons are? And he said to us, listen. So, like, I would say that the, the, the level of the security in the prison right now, like, the kind in the middle, mm-hmm. we, we know that they may do arrests at any time. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, like, our forces are prepared, like, I mean, for anything. So, but the situation, like, still remains dangerous, actually. You know, these are makeshift buildings. They were never meant to be prisons. And we know that one day the fellow ISIS members of a lot of the people inside are going to come for them. And when they do, there's not going to be much we're going to be able to do. 
And what are the fears of what that could mean for the future, to have these ISIS members who were able to escape from the prison and are doing who knows what right now? Well, the fear, of course, is that they're going to, you know, get out of prison, find their way back to to sleeper cells, to training camps, and and to sort of help reconstitute ISIS in some form and come back to launch bigger attacks, kind of, you know, more deadly attacks. It's also possible that they might, you know, sort of slip away and and not become dangerous at all. But again, the problem is we don't know because there has been very little transparency about who has gone, how many of them constitute a particular threat. And yeah, I mean, these are big questions for the SDF and the U.S. to answer right now. So tell me about how the U.S. responded to this prison attack. Well, a couple of days after the prison attack, the U.S. actually killed the ISIS leader in the northern province of Idlib. Last night, operating on my orders, the United States military forces successfully moved a major terrorist threat to the world, the global leader of ISIS, known as Haji Abdullah. Well, the U.S. says it wasn't a direct response to the Hasakir attack, to the prison attack. They say it was pre-planned. They say it had been in the works for a long time. It's hard not to see the connection, you know, at a time when Islamic State propaganda channels were going pretty wild with uh, celebration at what had been managed in this prison assault. To, to sort of strike back with this attack to kill the group's leader does seem like a sort of a statement of intent, a statement that, you know, even if ISIS can bust hundreds of people out of prison, the U.S. can still reach its leader anyway. He was responsible for the recent brutal attack on a prison in northeast Syria holding ISIS fighters, which was swiftly addressed by our brave partners in the Syrian Democratic Forces. So in Biden's comments after the attack, he really focused on the fact that, you know, taking this one man out of commission was a significant blow to the Islamic State's operations. This horrible terrorist leader is no more. You know, this is something that the U.S. have repeatedly emphasized when they've gone after people who they've described as high-level leaders. They, they always say that the removal of these key figures is, you know, is a death blow to the organization, is a propaganda blow to the organization. But I think we're really going to have to see if that is true. You know, the former ISIS leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was killed. The organization didn't go away. They found a new leader. They carried on operating. And, you know, this guy in particular... He wasn't the talismanic leader that you know Baghdadi was. He was someone who operated a lot more in the shadows. We know a lot less about his day-to-day significance to the operation. And so the question I would really pose back is, how much does the United States know about how important this man was? And really, is this more an act of propaganda or is this more an act of organizational dismantling? Louisa Loveluck is the Baghdad bureau chief for The Post. After the break, as the Supreme Court considers the future of Roe v. Wade, Vermont is positioning itself to become the first state to make access to abortion part of their constitution. We'll be right back. And now, one more thing. Will the House come to order and members kindly take their seats? On Tuesday, Vermont lawmakers voted to make access to abortion part of the state constitution. I rise today to present Proposal 5, also known as the Reproductive Liberty Amendment, which would amend the constitution of the state of Vermont in order to secure personal reproductive liberty as a fundamental right. 
Now, a lot of other states, 15 other states, have state laws that explicitly protect the right to abortion. But this would be the first time that a state was actually putting that right in its state constitution. Caroline Kitchener is a politics reporter covering abortion for The Post. You saw, you know, people reacting on both sides, saying, you know, on the abortion rights side, that this is, you know, what all progressive states should do. I strongly believe in the full spectrum of choice. I use the word spectrum to highlight that reproductive health is not linear. The beauty of choice is that it doesn't force anything in one direction or another. It simply provides options for those who need them. Who are we to define what those needs are? On the other side, you saw people really criticizing this move, saying it was extreme, saying it went too far. This proposed amendment could open the door to unknown experiments in human exploitation. To support it is irresponsible and beneath the good conscience of this body. In November, this will be on the ballot, and Vermonters will get to decide, do we want to have a constitutional amendment that explicitly protects the right to abortion? It's widely expected to pass. 70% of Vermonters believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases, which is far higher than most other places in the country. The Supreme Court case that everyone is watching is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The case centers on a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. The Supreme Court's decision could significantly weaken or even overturn Roe v. Wade. And what you're seeing in state legislatures across the country are states really preparing for this decision to come down. You're seeing in anti-abortion states, they're trying to pass as much restrictive legislation as possible so that whatever the Supreme Court decides, whether it decides to uphold the Mississippi law and rules narrowly without fully overturning Roe v. Wade or, you know, whether it overturns the precedent altogether. They want to have something. They want to have some law that can immediately take effect, whether it's, you know, a six-week ban or a 15-week ban or something that bans abortions completely in the state. Now, I was in Tallahassee last week. The Committee on Health Policy will now come to order. Tory, please call the roll where legislators in Florida are considering a 15-week ban that looks almost identical to the Mississippi ban that's currently before the Supreme Court. The leadership have quickly coalesced behind a 15-week ban, which is still a direct violation of Roe v. Wade. So it's interesting the language that Republican lawmakers were using to describe the 15-week ban. They were calling it, you know, very reasonable. It's a compromise. We're not banning abortion. We're giving women a choice. We're not taking away their right to abortion. We're taking away the right to end a life. That's, to me, because I believe life begins at conception, that's generous. So abortion rights proponents felt like that was a strategy to sort of convince moderate voters that this was not as, you know, quote-unquote bad, and therefore they should feel more comfortable with it. But it's interesting. You're seeing laws in different states with different political inclinations that are really at 
the far end of both sides of the spectrum, trying to, on one hand, fully eliminate the right to abortion, and on the other, put it in the state constitution so that nothing can ever, ever touch it. Caroline Kitchener is a political reporter covering abortion for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sam Baer and Sean Carter. It was produced by Alexis Diao and edited by Maggie Penman. If you're hungry for more coverage of the Beijing Olympics, I will be hosting a Washington Post Twitter space tomorrow on Thursday about the latest from the Winter Games. I'll be talking to reporters and editors on our sports desk about all the big stories and athletes. To listen in, follow the Washington Post on Twitter. Our conversation will start at 1 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, and you will see a link there to jump in. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 